You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer's political podcast. I'm Jordan Schrader, and I'm hosting this week. Uh, here with me are Will Doran and Dan Kane. Um, Will, the legislature is back. It seems like they were just here. Uh, and they were just a couple weeks ago, um, but they are back this week working on new maps. Um, what? Uh, first of all, let's talk about the maps, and then we can talk about what else they might do. Um, so, where do the new congressional maps stand? The new congressional maps—they um, are basically in the draft stage right now. We don't really have any maps for Congress uh, because uh, court came down and basically invalidated the. The current maps that we're using, um, and said just you can't run the 2020 elections on the current maps, and so right now we just don't really have any maps, um, and so the legislature needs to uh, get together and figure out new maps that are going to satisfy the judges. These are the same judges that recently struck down the state legislature's maps uh, for the, the general assembly as unconstitutional um, for being basically too. Uh, politically skewed uh, to help out Republicans and to disenfranchise Democratic voters. So they have been in committee the last few days uh, drawing this, some of just the top leaders from both parties drawing these new maps and the full legislature is going to be back on Wednesday of this week and they um, could vote, you know, starting Wednesday on these new maps. Um, the committee is meeting again Tuesday when they could finish up. Uh, we don't really have any idea yet of exactly when they will be done, but we do know that they are trying to go as fast as possible, basically. Um, both Republicans and Democrats are on board with that strategy. They might disagree over the shape of the individual maps, but everybody wants to get this done quickly because um, it just makes sense. Uh, candidate filing for the 2020 elections starts and ends next month in December. Uh, and so, you know, if if you don't know what the districts even look like, it's really hard to recruit candidates for those districts, or it's hard for the incumbents to know if they're going to run for re-election again, or if they feel like they've been uh, redrawn into a newly shaped district that is just, you know, far too difficult for them to win in. So uh, we have 13 members of Congress. Are there any guesses about which ones might have to really worry about what their districts might look like just because of um, population and uh, demographics? Um, sure, there's there's plenty of speculation. And I mean, there's also, you know, tons and tons of different ways to draw the map. So, you know, really anyone could be put into danger, but probably the most likely scenario that we're going to see is there will be a handful of seats that are currently held by Republican lawmakers that will become easier for Democrats to flip. Um, probably a prime candidate for that is George Holding, who represents basically the, the Wake County suburbs. He doesn't have much of the actual city of Raleigh itself, um, but he has basically all the suburbs, um, plus you know areas from basically Harnett County through Johnston County up north uh, into Franklin County. Um, that's his current district, uh, but that will almost certainly uh, get redrawn at least a little bit, and he could he could find himself in trouble just because, uh, you know, basically what we've seen in the in the Trump area is the the suburbs have flipped so rapidly from being you know a solid Republican bastion to um, 
pretty solid for Democrats. Um, he could be in trouble. Another one where it could be interesting to watch is out in the far western part of the state uh, where Mark Meadows is. And Mark Meadows is currently in a very, very safe district. Um, but part of the reason for that is because uh, several of the districts split Asheville up. And if Asheville, uh, which obviously has a well-earned reputation for being a pretty liberal city, is entirely included in one district, obviously that adds a ton of Democrats to whatever district it gets put into. A lot of the draft maps that we've seen so far put all of Asheville into Mark Meadows' district. Um, and that area obviously has a history of being kind of a swing area. Um, Heath Schuler represented it before Mark Meadows did, and he was uh, you know, very well-known actually nationally as not only an NFL quarterback, <laughs> but also as a blue dog Democrat, uh, basically someone who who voted with Democrats on some kind of fiscal things, but on social things, uh, you know, guns, abortion, things like that, he tended to vote with Republicans. Um, and so that that area is traditionally kind of, you know, a little bit more moderate like that. And it would be it would be interesting to see what what the new maps do with uh, with that district as well. Has this been a transparent process? We've talked a lot about transparency when the legislature redrew the state legislative maps, which happened before. Uh, they had to redraw these federal congressional maps, uh, and it was way more transparent than any past process. Um, I have seen some chatter just on Twitter that you know, people complaining about lawmakers leaving the room and then coming back into the room and leaving the room and coming back in the room as if they are, you know, are having meetings to talk about the maps. And um, Have you seen that, and have you seen any differences between this and the, the last round of map drawing? Right. So I, I think, yes, we, ha we have seen that. We've seen some of the Republican leaders, you know, frequently coming in and out of the room and the basically the allegation from some of the, the people on the left and some of the lawyers who challenged these maps in court is basically a concern that they are leaving the room to kind of take orders from some, you know, shadowy figure over the phone who's running all sorts of, you know, permutations of these maps and everything like that and telling them, you know, exactly which, you know, individual voting precincts to to move here or there. We don't know if that's happening. Uh, you know, we've heard those allegations, obviously, and we've also heard similar allegations when they were drawing the legislative maps, although the, the, the court that overturned the legislative maps basically didn't give any credence to those allegations when the, the challengers made those in court. So, you know, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to see if it happens again this time, although you never know. Um, but yeah, I mean, we should mention, you know, for all of history, redistricting has, you know, been done in, you know, the, the stereotypical smoke-filled room, uh, you know, that no one except a very, very small handful of people had access to. None of the public knew what happened, uh, you know, what kind of horse trading went on. Um, but for both of the two redistricting processes we've seen uh, this fall, the, the one now for the congressional lines and the one in September for the legislative lines, you know, it's not only been happening in meetings that are open to the public, but that are being live streamed online for anyone in the world who wants to watch or listen in to do so. So, you know, huge improvement in transparency, um, absolutely. And it was ordered by the court in the last one. It was not necessarily ordered in this one, but the court basically strongly suggested that they do uh, the same thing, and they took that hint from the court and have done so. Um, so, yeah, definitely, you know, kudos to the legislative leaders for uh, for opening this process up to the public, even though 
in a lot of instances, it has not exactly, you know, been a winning popularity contest for them. Uh, you know, you've mentioned there's been lots of uh, public comments that they've received online. There's probably several hundred public comments, and they're just about all negative. Um, but, you know, the only way that people are even really able to know what's going on is because the legislators, you know, chose to provide this level of transparency. Wondering about what else they might do while they're in town. Um, Governor Cooper vetoed the um, teacher raises that had been passed um, a couple weeks ago, and he, he vetoed it last week. And uh, he said that the raises were inadequate, um, that he wants to negotiate for bigger raises. Um, he said that he would negotiate that and other budget items uh, separately as opposed to um, demanding that Medicaid be expanded before um, teachers get raises. Um, so there seemed to be a, a little movement on that. Uh, are they going to do anything on the budget while they're back? Or, um, you know, what else could, could come up here? Probably not going to do anything on the veto overrides. But, I mean, we should note that, you know, Republicans absolutely slammed Governor Cooper for this veto. They said, you know, we have for years been passing teacher raises now. And, you know, Cooper has vetoed every single one and basically accused him of just duping teachers, using them as pawns in a political game when, you know, he's he's the one vetoing the races. Of course, Cooper says, well, the only reason I'm vetoing is these races because I think they should be even bigger and Republicans aren't giving teachers enough of a raise. So, you know, you have both sides with their talking points, obviously. Um, it seems like that could be um, a major campaign issue in 2020, especially if teachers still haven't gotten a raise at that point. Um, Absolutely. You know, yeah. Republicans uh, w would certainly be expected to hammer Cooper over over that. Yeah, and uh, it, it looks like the, the veto override uh, from Cooper of the whole budget is going to wait until at least the start of 2020. Um, and that's kind of a strategic thing. There are there, there were thoughts that there were some Democrats who were maybe on the fence and maybe willing to vote for the override, but we're scared of uh, getting primaried uh, by a more liberal Democrat if they were to go against the governor like that. So by waiting until January or February to hold those veto override votes, uh, you know, that would allow those Democrats who might have been on the fence to kind of see if they have a primary challenger or a scary primary challenger and then, you know, make their veto decision knowing whether or not they're safe on that. Um, but this month, while they're here, in, in addition to redistricting, we could see um, a replacement for Harry Smith, uh, former chairman of the UNC Board of Governors, who just stepped down. Um, they could also fill, you know, any any other um, empty seats on state boards that uh, pop up, although I'm not aware of any high-profile ones really right now other than uh, than Harry Smith's. But that that's pretty much the... Uh, the highlights of, of what we expect, uh, you know, new Board of Governors member, and then, you know, redistricting. Meanwhile, um, seems like the legislature is always here. And uh, as we know, some of them uh, have homes here because of that. How's that for a segue? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and one legislator who uh, has a house here, um, gotten some hot water last week over it with uh, uh, a election camp complaint filed about how he's paid for that house. Um, so tell us about Phil Berger's house and what the objection is. To sure. It. Yeah. So Senate leader Phil Berger, who's arguably the most powerful person in the state, owns a townhouse in Raleigh and has basically been using his campaign donors money to 
pay his mortgage on that townhouse basically through kind of a complicated financial setup that involves using a LLC that's kind of set up as a property manager for the house. So the money doesn't go directly to him, but it goes into an LLC that he owns and controls. Bob Hall, who's a longtime veteran, uh, basically good government watchdog, campaign finance hawk here in North Carolina, uh, raises think about this and is asking the Board of Elections to look into it, see if Berger is violating any rules, because while there's nothing wrong with politicians using their campaign money to, uh, to rent uh, apartments or to pay for hotel rooms, things like that, when they're in town in Raleigh for uh, lawmaking sessions, he says that there is you know, a, basically just a fundamental problem with politicians using their campaigns to enrich themselves. And he says, you know, you shouldn't be able to use your public office to enrich yourself. And, you know, obviously, you know, most people who pay even a little bit of attention to the economy knows that, you know, usually buying property in Wake County is a, a fairly good investment. So that's his complaint. Berger says that there is absolutely nothing to that. He said that he got this approved by the Board of Elections multiple times. He said he got it approved back in 2016. He got it reapproved again in 2019. Um, basically after the board transitioned uh, from being under Republican control in 2016, and then it was kind of a bipartisan board in, in the interim, and then in 2019 it shifted to being under Democratic control. So he says he's gotten approved under both a Republican and Democratic-controlled uh, state board of elections, and you know this is all just a whole a whole lot of nothing, and he's not violating any sort of rules. And were you able to confirm that the state board is signed off on this? They had signed off on yeah. it. Yes, um, uh, they they said uh, basically what I just said that you know th- there's nothing wrong with uh, politicians using campaign money uh, for housing when they're in session, um, and I think what what Bob Hall wants them to do is to reconsider that decision um, and in some ways it's surprising that uh, more people aren't doing this if the state says it's okay exactly well and that's that was another part of Hall's complaint he said that basically if the state just you know shrugs this off that it's going to open doors for a lot more people uh, he said he went through several years of campaign finance uh, filings and the only other person that he could see who had ever had a situation like this was uh, House Speaker Tim Moore uh, Berger's counterpart in the House uh, also had bought a condo in downtown Raleigh or near downtown Raleigh and had effectively been using his campaign to pay off that mortgage, uh, similar to what Berger had been doing. Um, although, in kind of a difference from Berger, Berger appears to be using his campaign uh, money year-round on this. Uh, Moore used his campaign money only when the legislature wasn't in session. When the legislature is in session, lawmakers get $104 a day for a per diem expense, and he used that uh, to pay to pay himself rent, essentially. Moore did. Okay. Um, well, Dan, there's uh, one other thing we should talk about uh, before we do Headliner of the Week, um, which is uh, a spending item that you've been following um, from past years and how the um, Sheriff's Association uh, got money to help improve North Carolina's tracking of sex offenders um, and then never spent the money. So it's a little unusual to have a group uh, get money from the state and, and never use it. So what, uh, what did you find out happened? Well, this all started in uh, 2018 where, you know, the legislative leaders did something unusual 
in that they passed a, a budget which was done through a conference report. So we didn't have a typical you know, budget session where you know, different committees in, in the legislature meet on different pieces of the budget like health and human services and um, justice, public safety and education, what have you. There was just a, a big, this big conference report that was rolled out with an up or down vote and so, uh, and it passed, uh, and after it passed, uh, you know, we learned that, you know, there was $500,000 put in there that was given to the Sheriff's Association to try to, um, you know, enhance the, the sex offender tracking in the state. And basically it was like a grant um, opportunity. Um, they would um, be able to hand out grants to, uh, I don't know if it would be all the Sheriff's Departments or some of them, um, but, uh, uh, to improve their 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 sex offender um, tracking, and so they um, studied what needed to be done, and they put together a you know a sort of a special committee that included like three sheriffs and a, um, two people with the UNC School of Government and a Wake County Assistant uh, District Attorney, and they looked at um, what the system currently does, um, some of the things that that sheriffs are kind of keeping eternally on sex offenders, things like, you know, their, their residences, where they work, you know, um, contact people, uh, points of contact, and, um, uh, and basically came up with a report saying, you know, um, here, are, here are some things that would be very helpful to have in, in, this, in this system. Uh, and they put out, you know, bids for um, somebody, you know, a company to do that. Um, well, one of the companies that bid um, and this takes us right back to the beginning of 2018, um, had hired a lobbyist who had gone to the legislature and, and spoken with one of the budget writers to get that $500,000 into the budget in the first place. So, so basically, this was a business opportunity that, was, that looked to be coming to fruition you know, for this company um, that had hired uh, you know, a, a lobbyist who was a, a former top aide to you know, House Speaker Tim Moore. Um, but the Sheriff's Association, in uh, looking at the, the proposals that were put forward, there were two proposals, um, uh, realized that both of those provo- proposals were seeking, you know, a recurring revenue stream. So um, they were in, they, so they were expecting if they if they got the contract, you know, not only would they be paid, you know, for that year, but then in, in ensuing years, I guess presumably to keep things up and running or or provide IT support, what have you. And the Sheriff's Association realized that, well, you know, this is a one-time grant, you know, um, we spend the money and it's gone. And they felt that wasn't a good way to go. So they just decided not to spend the money and, and they pushed for and they actually got in this year's budget uh, a $500,000 um, expenditure um, for the State Bureau of Investigation to upgrade their system. And since the budget was not passed, or, or excuse me, it was passed, but it was vetoed, and, and that and that ve- the governor's veto has not been overridden, um, it's just kind of sitting there in limbo. And um, it sounds like it sounds like the SBI would be happy to have the money, you know, to improve this system, um, but um, whether or not that'll happen, you know, we don't know. So uh, it was kind of an interesting, yeah, it was kind of an interesting uh, outcome here, uh, given how that money had gotten into the budget and. Um, uh, and and what it what you know what what the intent was. If this goes through, will we have a um, unusually strong sex offender tracking system? Uh, you know, I, I don't 
I don't know because um, uh, I'm not an expert on, on those kinds of, of things. I know different states, uh, not everybody has the same system. Different states um, uh, will include uh, different pieces of information. Florida, for example, uh, includes what cars people drive, you know, or at least what they're what what, what they're registered as having, or or, or what they're uh, what is uh, recorded as what they own. Um, I don't, uh, North Carolina system doesn't have that, for example. So it's possible you could have a system that that um, you know has more information. Of course, you know you also run into um, there are some issues with with these uh, sex offender um, registries. Um, I mean, there's there's actually research that suggests that they really they don't seem to do anything in terms of reducing that kind of crime. Um, and in the meantime, also make it extremely difficult for these people to you know get jobs, um, uh, find places to live. Um, so, you know, we might see some of that debate if, if uh, we move forward with a, with a system that has, you know, provides the public with more information on these people. Of course, the, you know, one of the ways they could go is to continue to have public what's public, but then maybe perhaps have a private side, you know, within the system that includes some of this information so that the sheriffs, it's easier for them to track, uh, track these people, but not necessarily, you know, um, you know, just make it that much more onerous for these people in terms of you know registering and providing information um you know another another aspect that um this uh the study turned up was things like you know uh, when if there's a change in a sex offender say say their residence or whatever you know they have to go in to the sheriff's office to give them in, that information if, if they let's say they something changes in their appearance they have to go to the sheriff's office you know, to get another picture taken. And um, one of the things that the sheriffs uh, um, think would be uh, a big enhancement is um, for, the, for the deputies to be able to just go out into the field, take these pictures, um, update this information, you know, in the field as opposed to having to, you know, get people to come in because sometimes that's, that's very difficult. So, so, um, so there could be, some, you know, a positive outcome out of all of this. Uh, when all said and done, you know, we'll see what happens, you know, next year. Uh, I, I imagine that um, there will be, I'm not aware of anybody really kind of opposing, you know, trying to make the system better. Um, so it, it's, it's possible we could see some action next year. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and then come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Headliner of the Week. 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 Who's hot? And we are back with Headliner of the Week, uh, everyone's favorite segment where we decide the most important person, place, thing in this week's news. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner? Uh, my headliner is going to be Light Rail. Uh, might be the last time in a while that we hear anything about Light Rail. It you know, famously died uh, earlier this year in the spring after uh, Duke University basically pulled the plug on its support and kind of doomed the whole project. Uh, it had, you know, had some kind of high profile losses earlier too, with obviously a lot of uh, political opposition uh, from the legislature over the high price tag. Um, Wake County pulled out uh, several years ago, again, citing high costs. And then uh, this weekend uh, I wrote an article, uh, there was basically a post-mortem report that Go Triangle had commissioned. Uh, that found that basically the group had gotten in kind of over its head, that light rail was basically a little too ambitious and wasn't necessarily handled well. And, you know, over the past 
uh, basically two decades that people have been pushing for this, uh, found basically that uh, the project wasted well over $100 million. And it, it was a, a pretty critical report, you know, kind of also offered some, you know, some positive ideas for how the how Go Triangle can basically bounce back from this and do better in the future. And the interim CEO was, you know, receptive of the report, you know, and uh, listed basically ways that the company is, not the company, the group, is going to try to address these findings. So if you're interested in public transportation or big political snafus, go uh, check out my article from this weekend. All right. Light rail. Is that the uh, headliner? This is the actual yeah. light rail? Yeah, we'll yeah, go for light rail. Itself. Okay. <laughs> light rail is in the hat for headliner of the week. Dan Kane, who's your headliner? Uh, I'm going to go with the suburbs. The and, suburbs? Uh, the suburbs. Okay. And um, uh, just, uh, you know, all the talk with the uh, Virginia elections and uh, as an example of how the suburbs really, uh, they, they flipped the legislature uh, and there's a lot of uh, worry, I think, among you know Republicans that you know that trend um, you know may extend into North Carolina. I think, and and um, and I, and this with the redistricting action that's happening, you know, this week, uh, and we talked about you know George Holding's seat. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see you know whether you know they're how much they're worried about um, this uh, you know change in 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 the suburban areas from you know sort of. You know, Republican, um, Republican leaning to now leaning or almost solid Democrat. Um, we'll see how we'll see whether that plays a role in the districts that they come up with. Um, you know, perhaps this week. All right. Um, it seems like the various scandals in Virginia that uh, dominated Virginia politics must not have had too much of an impact on the actual elections. Um, I haven't read a ton of coverage out of it, but it seems like all we are seeing was scandals among the Democrats in, in the governor's office and the lieutenant governor's office, and then Democrats yeah. did very well. So To take the state um, legislature, what, not even a year after the governor's blackface photo comes out? Maybe so, a little over a year? I mean, that was, that was pretty shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, 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 and it, but it also makes you think that, you know, a lot of this uh, suburban switch may well have to do with Trump, where there are certainly, you know, a lot of scandal you know, dominating the, you know, the um, daily news. Sure. Front. There's no yeah. shortage more, of scandals. More recent yeah. scandals trump the uh, the older scan, the more local scandals, I guess. Um, okay, well, I like it. The Suburbs. Uh, the Suburbs is our headliner of the week, and Dan is our winner this week. Uh, so for Dan Kane and Will Doran, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us again next week on Domecast. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 